Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banter Podcast, where birders talk birding. I've been birding in a lot of places, and I've been to a lot of places to go birding. But often, I, like I suspect a lot of you, go to places and try to find some birding nearby because there's another reason for being there. Las Vegas is a typical place like that, a place that a lot of people go to. If I were to ask listeners, how many of you have been to Las Vegas? I'm guessing a lot of you would raise your hands. But if I asked, how many of you went to Las Vegas on a primary birding trip? I'm guessing it might be less. Well, my guest on this episode is Alex Harper. Alex lives in Las Vegas, and he, along with a group of other birders, offer guided birding trips from Las Vegas through the company Bird Las Vegas. We talk a lot on this episode about trips out of Las Vegas, along with his experiences growing up in Florida, and turns out that Alex knows a good friend of mine, Charlie Wright, here in Tacoma, and they're sort of birding buddies. So I think you'll enjoy hearing from Alex on birding Las Vegas and lots more. Help me welcome Alex Harper to the Bird Banner Podcast. Alex, welcome to the Bird Banner Podcast. Thanks for being on with me today. What's going on, Ed? It is a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad that we found some time to make this happen. Yeah, I'm I'm excited too. You asked me what's going on. I'm sitting. That's good. I, ju- I just got back from a five-day pelagic trip. We talked about this a second before we started uh, on uh, Friday. So I guess it's Monday. Anyway, I'm still a little vertiginous after that, but it, it was a oh, wonderful trip. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. Okay, now you, you got to tell us what did you what did you see? What was out there? You were out there for five days, right? Yeah, out five days, uh, really four days, three full days, and two partial days. Uh, but uh, it's a trip that uh, Todd McGrath runs every year out of San Diego. Uh, it leaves about midday and gets back and has that day and three full days at sea, and they get back early, you know, bright and early the next morning because they turn that boat around in two or three hours and head out again at noon generally. Uh, Although on this trip, they didn't because Hurricane K uh, came in and we sort of finished the trip at midnight instead of finishing the trip at eight in the morning. So it just missed. We slept at the dock instead of sleeping outside the harbor waiting to come in uh, because they were a little worried about the the high wind uh, warning. Uh, But anyway, it it heads out from the harbor and heads north up towards the uh, Channel Islands, uh, goes to a, a a little island that is the only known bird breeding place for blue-footed boobies and has maybe 150 or 200 brown boobies and then heads out to sea to a couple of sea mounts. And it was a spectacular trip. We got all of the birds we wanted. I, I had done this trip once before in 2016 and my best birding buddy, buddy Ken Brown joined me on this trip. I've been telling him for years he had to come. And he finally joined me this year. And it was wonderful. We had, he got nine lifers. I got two. I got red-footed booby and, and Nazca booby. And we saw all the all of the birds we expected, you know, red-billed tropic bird and Townsend's, uh, Townsend's storm petrel. We got at least a whole bunch of leaf storm petrels, tons of black storm petrels, all of the color variations of leeches. Uh, we ran into a huge flock, 500 or more uh, buller shearwaters. Uh, it was just fabulous that we got two uh pterodromas we got probably 60 cooks petrels and one hawaiian petrel it was it was an awesome trip just totally awesome wow and and to end the trip on the last night of the trip where the 
light is fading and a, a whale had been playing around the boat. So we stopped the boat uh, and we're watching this whale. And some, as is the case often when whales are around, there are storm petrels around because they like to feed on the you know, oil and debris off the off the whales. And a little flock of storm petrels came in and we put out a select to see if we could get some more. Uh, there was a white rump storm petrel uh, and there were uh, a whole bunch of black storm petrels and a few least. And we all assumed it was another Townsend's because that's what had been around. Uh, but Dave uh, got a picture and it was a band rump storm petrel, just a real mega rarity. And few people got on it and I kind of saw something that might've been it, but it was getting dark and I, I'm not going to list that on my list, but it was still exciting to be around that happening. So it was wonderful. Just awesome. You pretty much mentioned every single bird that I was going to ask about. And then not only that, you had multiple of some of those birds. I was going to ask if you had bullish shearwater, if you had any red-footed boobies, and it sounds like you you had a little yeah. bit of, of everything. Yeah, then- I, feel like, I feel like you have me on this podcast. That's the best. Uh, <laughs> you're the host and I'll be the guest. Anyway, it's great. Uh, <laughs> my, my life for red-footed booby was after leaving the booby colony, we're quite a ways out from there. And one of the one of the leaders uh, says, an interesting dark booby coming in from the right and uh, or probably two o'clock or something. I was naming a clock and way a speck in the sky is, is a dark bird coming at us. And it is boobies, this red footed boobies, especially they are fast. They really can travel. And this bird goes from about two miles out to on top of us in, you know, it seemed like seconds. We watch it come in. We know what it is. It's great. And I just got a new camera and fun taking pictures. Uh, and this bird is coming in fast. And I take my bins down because it's getting too close. I try to get my camera up. And I have one picture of this red-footed booby. It is of the right axle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's like kind of the whole full frame right axle picture. This bird came with about eight feet overhead. It almost, and we almost had to duck. It came so close. It was just fat. And then disappeared in the sun, right, going right away from us. So it was wonderful. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool. Welcome back to land. Yeah. This trip is different because uh, unlike most, you know, one day pelagics, you churn, churn, churn out to sea. You have three hours of birding and you churn, churn, churn back in. This is you're not in a hurry. You come across a good bird. You spend an hour or two with them. You go along. It's just, you know, you have all day. It was really good. Amazing. Yeah, highly recommend it. Uh, so back to you, Alex. Uh, you are one of the uh, tour guides for Birding Las Vegas, or Bird Las Vegas. You have a website and a, and a uh, you guide trips out of Las Vegas. You know, Las Vegas is a place that you know I think of going to play cards or slots or something, and and maybe rest at a pool. But I don't think of Birding Las Vegas. What's up with Birding Las Vegas? You know, when I first came out here for a fuel job in 2015, I didn't know what to expect. Of course, I knew about Las Vegas as a destination for casinos and gambling and uh, turn and burn vacations. It's Sin City, right? And I came out here for a field job uh, as an avian biologist working in the renewable industry. And I thought it would just be a temporary thing, you know, just uh, three months doing field work during spring migration, and then I'd be out of here. So I didn't really even do research before I showed up. And what I found when I got here is that uh, the city itself has sprawled greatly, especially in the last few decades, and has a number of uh, small parks interdispersed throughout the city that have surface water, maybe about 10 of them. 
on the east side of the metropolitan area, so the east side of Las Vegas and Henderson, we also have some reclaimed water facilities that attract birds. We have a bird preserve and then we have a wetland that has actually been created by diverting water that has been treated by the people that visit here and the people that live here. And that has created a lot of opportunities for birds to occupy some of these parks. Uh, so some of our, uh, our native species that don't leave, they're here year round, but also a lot of migratory birds pass through. So you have pretty much every Western songbird that migrates through this region of North America will pass through regularly in the spring and again in the fall. And of course, when you have surface water around in the desert, you also attract shorebirds, you attract wayward gulls and seabirds. So uh, between all of those places that I mentioned, areas outside of Las Vegas that are natural areas, you know, natural desert, desert scrub, you have some montane areas around with uh, some mountains that get 11 or 12,000 feet in elevation very close to the city, you ha actually have a number of different places where you have artificial birding hotspots, as well as, you know, uh, nothing but public land that is free to roam that goes from 1,000, uh, 1,500 feet in elevation near the Colorado River all the way up to uh, the Alpine and uh, Ponderosa Pine, Aspen forests that you get throughout the Intermontane West. So it's actually fairly dynamic. We don't have a lot of areas that are going to give you, you know, 100 plus species at, at one location. But if you just spend the day visiting multiple sites, you're going to visit multiple habitats. And when you have multiple habitats, you, of course, have multiple species of birds and the West has so many species of, of birds. We're, we're so close to California. And as you know, uh, California has the highest number of bird species of any state in the union. You know, we're only five hours from San Diego uh, driving, right? And that has the highest number of bird species uh, for a county in the United States. So we do have bird diversity here, but uh, none of the sites within Las Vegas are going to blow anyone away, but I guarantee that they'll surprise most people that have never been to an area like this before. Um, and we saw that opportunity to create the bird guiding experience for people that visit here because it's already set up for tourism infrastructure that already uh, exists. So really, we just made it a little bit easier for people to get to these destinations that I just mentioned. I would I would think you'd have a lot of clientele. I mean, you know, a lot of people go to Las Vegas at some time in their adult life. I mean, it's just one of those places people end up at for might be a, for a convention, might be to go, uh, you know, party or gamble, might be for a family vacation. Could be lots of reasons. And uh, the opportunity to hire expert guides to get you out for a half a day or a day of birding, maybe get you away from the maybe there are other aspects of things that might be other people in your party's favorite thing, but not yours or whatever. Uh, and uh, also a lot of people go to Las Vegas who are more casual birders, maybe who uh, are pretty comfortable birding in their backyard around their own home, but maybe not comfortable getting out in a, a kind of scary, a desert can be kind of scary to some people. You just nailed it. Um, you know, we have people that come in for conventions, 
Uh, maybe it's a convention that is relevant to their work industry or their interests. They have a hobby and there's a convention here, or there's a corporate holiday, a corporate meeting. You have uh, family vacations. We get people who are here on holiday and have a couple days with their friends that are all coming from around the country, but they want to get out for half a day. Uh, they want to get out for a full day. So these are people that are here to do something related to work. They are here to uh, walk the strip, go gamble a little bit, maybe not gamble, definitely see some shows, but they also know that there's uh, there are birds around and they want to see a Verdon, a Thana Pepla, a Crystal Thrasher, and maybe they haven't been to the desert before, and that you're exactly uh, you're exactly right there. They want to experience the desert. They don't want to rent a car. They want to um, to pay to have somebody take them to the birds, show them a little bit about Las Vegas, which is more than uh, the Strip. It's more than this uh, tourism uh, boomtown that is a Strip. It is also a place where people live. You know, I, I live here. I have friends that uh, grew up here and it's sort of a normal city other than what we have going on and, you know, just the very center of it where the Strip is. We have uh, tons of wildlife around. This is the Mojave Desert. And, um, you know, you could go any direction and you're in a new geological zone with trees and uh, respective wildlife that uh, will be found in areas where the vegetation changes drastically, just sort of depending on the elevation that you're at or the direction that you went in. Yeah. And I mean, there and some of the birds in the desert are just the coolest birds. I mean, Verdon, it doesn't get cooler than Verdon, Cactus Wren. Uh, I mean, Faina Pepla. I mean, you've got some really cool birds down there. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people that have not been to the desert before want to see a Verdon. They want to see a Costas hummingbird. Uh, a lot of people that come from the East Coast that have not been to the desert before and maybe haven't been to Tucson or made the pilgrimage to Southeast Arizona yet, maybe they're just starting off birding in the West for the first time or the second time, maybe the third time. They want to see these classic desert species, the birds that you come across in the trip reports or you see frequent photos of because they're common birds or uh, fairly common birds. Photogenic have, birds, yeah. Photogenic birds, yeah. Maybe they're fairly common birds, but that doesn't matter. If you've never seen one and you know that it's going to take some research and some effort to go out and see them on your own, you might as well hire people that can take you right to them and take you right back to the strip right afterwards. So we saw that opportunity and uh, yeah, it's paid off pretty well for us. Yeah, maybe somebody had a big win the night before. They can tire you on the, on the house. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I haven't met anyone who's made a big win and done that yet, but uh, it, is, <laughs> it can happen any day now. Sure. Uh, so what does, a, what does a half day and what does a full day trip look like when you take one? So our half days are about four hours and our full days can go eight hours. Uh, sometimes they can go for a little bit longer. And our half days are pretty simple. Usually we will meet on the east side of town in one of these areas that has water uh, because this is where you can get your the best bang for your buck. And it only takes four hours, right? And so if you leave the strip, you can be at some of these destinations after 20 or 25 minutes, and you only need a couple hours to bird them. So we'll go to a place like the Henderson Bird Viewing Preserve, 
and that will have Blacktail Nagcatcher, Burden, Abert's Toey, Crystal Thrasher, Costas and Anna's Hummingbirds. You'll have Gamble's Quail, Greater Roadrunner a lot of the time. Who doesn't want to see a Greater Roadrunner? So we'll go there for two or three hours. And then typically we'll go to a park called Sunset Park, which is really only about 10 minutes from the strip. And that has Phanopepla, uh, almost guaranteed greater roadrunners. They're, they're um, pretty tame in that park too. We have ladder-backed woodpeckers and more of many of the species I just mentioned, uh, but also has the possibility of bringing in more songbirds. So, you know, between this reclaimed, this, this area that has reclaimed water that has been converted into a wetland and a place where people can recreate, it's called the Bird Preserve, that's run by the city of Henderson and this public park that is managed by the city of Las Vegas, you only need four hours and you can see maybe about 80 species depending on the season and a lot of the very common or uh, frequently requested desert species uh, all in one morning. For those that want to do a full day, this often requires a lot more driving because we'll actually head out of Las Vegas, usually going north, and we'll head up into the mountains. And once you're in the mountains, you're expecting a totally new set of birds. Las Vegas is situated at about 1,600 to 2,000 feet in elevation. It's in a valley, right? And so as you move east to west, you're gaining elevation. And as you move west or moving northwest, you gain elevation until you reach the peaks of these mountains. Along the way, you're passing through Joshua tree forests, so there's really large yuccas that are uh, one of those trees that makes the Mojave so famous. You pass through Joshua Tree Woodland, you move past the pinyon and juniper woodlands where you can get pinyon jays, woodhouse scrub jays, juniper, juniper titmice, black chin sparrows uh, in the spring and the summer. You move through that and then you're in ponderosa pine and aspen and white fir forest and you have hairy woodpeckers. You have Clark's nutcracker, Stellar's jay, Casson's finch, Red Crossbill, even Evening Grosbeak. You can even get uh, Northern Goshawks any month of the year up there. I could get in my car and drive 50 minutes and have a chance at seeing a Northern Goshawk. So once we're up there, you're looking for all these species that you might get in the Rocky Mountains. You might get them on the east slope of the Sierra Nevada range. You might get them even in other parts of the Great Basin or eastern Washington, eastern Oregon, uh, parts of California. So that's where we typically go on our full days and then we'll come back. We try to keep that at eight hours, but you're just covering so much ground on those full days that um, it can be kind of hard to maximize the birding without going over eight hours. Um, but we, we let people know that beforehand. And sure. No one really has any complaints about that. Yeah, I bet they don't. So when the goshawk flies by, any complaints have been forgotten. I will never <laughs> not look at a goshawk if one flies by. For sure. Uh, so I, I, it underst I understand that you came to Las Vegas for a job as a field ornithologist. Tell me your story. What's your birding story? How did you get, where are you from? Where did where'd you get started? Who was influential, et cetera? Yeah. So um, I'm about to turn 34 later on this month. And my parents tell me that my first word was birdie. And um, this, I blurted this out when I was about one years old. 
And uh, my dad had sat me down with a Roger Tory Peterson guide to the, the birds of Eastern North America. And apparently I was misbehaving. I was, I was one, right? Who's going to expect anything else from a rowdy one-year-old. And uh, we're looking through this book and I was captivated by the birds and, and said birdie. And I've been birding ever since. Uh, I grew up in the Miami, Florida area. So in and around Miami and my parents took me to the Everglades a lot, Everglades National Park, uh, when I was a toddler, when I was preschool age through elementary school, we were going to places like uh, Everglades National Park, Biscay National Park, Key Largo. Uh, they would take me to the aviary at uh, Miami Metro Zoo, now it's uh, Zoo Miami. And I had a pair of hand-me-down Bushnell binoculars that my grandfather gave to my dad. My dad wasn't really a birder. My mom really wasn't a birder. They gave me these binoculars and I had a couple field guides that my grandfather had given me. He was a birder up in the, uh, the Warren area of Pennsylvania, some Northwestern Pennsylvania. And he kept you know, his life list but that was sort of like a different era of birding. And he came from the area where Roger Tor Peterson had grown up, very close to Jamestown, New York. So I think he picked up birding from uh, that community that was around the Roger Tor Peterson Institute. And it skipped a generation. My dad really wasn't into it, but my dad knew enough to point out the cardinals, the blue jays, the fish crows, the ibis, the herons, the egrets, brown pelicans that we get in South Florida. And, you know, when you're a little kid, you kind of pick up whatever your your family might be interested in, or you just sort of, you're just a sponge, right? And so one of the nice things about South Florida is nature is always around you. Um, if you ever visit there, you know, birds in South Florida, they're just kind of everywhere. You know, you could just be driving down I-95 and a little blue heron flies over or flocks of parakeets are going by. So it was very easy and accessible for me in South Florida, even in the thicks of Miami, to pick that up. I birded pretty casually on my own or with my family uh, or alongside of my family up until the seventh grade or the eighth grade when I discovered a yellow-throated vireo in our yard on Thanksgiving Day, so pretty close to December. And I looked into one of these Roger Tory Peterson guides and looking at the field guide, uh, the range map there, I couldn't see that yellow-throated vireo was supposed to be in South Florida. And that, at that time of year, for sure. December, yeah. December. Now things have changed. Now they're, they're pretty regular for a couple of reasons. We have more birders looking. And also we have these rain shifts that I think we're experiencing in South Florida where these neotropical migrants are are staying in Peninsula, Florida for longer and longer in higher numbers. But at that time, this was really unusual to me. And the internet was just uh, becoming a resource, right? This would have been 2002, uh, Thanksgiving of 2002. So coming up on 20 years ago. And I hop in the internet, I do a AOL search. This is before Google. And this is well before Facebook. And I, I don't know where to go. So I just put into AOL in the search bar you know, yellow-throated vireo, winter, Miami. And the search engine takes me to a website uh, on birding in South Florida uh, by Larry Manfredi. 
And Larry Manfredi is uh, a longtime field guide uh, down in South Florida and the West Indies. And I ended up on his website and I thought, oh my goodness, there, there's another person in South Florida that is into birds. And not only that, this person makes a living actually showing people birds in South Florida. So I showed my parents and uh, my mom ended up getting me a, uh, a one day trip with Larry uh, for Christmas because I hadn't gotten a Christmas gift picked out. So the two of us went and joined Larry in January of 2003. I was blown away. Um, he showed me my first short-tailed hawk, uh, least Sam Piper, hooded merganser, green-winged teal, all these birds that I had only seen in, in a field guide. And I'm in eighth grade, so I'm just super excited about probably anything. But I was, I was a kid and uh, had all this extra energy and extra time. And Larry told me about an organization in the Miami area that uh, met pretty regularly to look for birds. And this was the Tropical Audubon Society. This is the local Miami-Dade chapter of a national organization. And so I go and look up that website and I, I'm blown away again. I can't believe that there's this whole community that is meeting regularly all around town at parks that I've been to, parks that I've heard of, and seeing birds that I had seen in the field guides before, but never imagined myself seeing. And not only that, there's a bird board, a, a place that uh, people could post about local sightings, and you could do research on different species that were uh, in the area. So I was hooked at that point. Um, I spent the better part of, of eighth grade trying to get out to some of these uh, these sites on the weekend to go bird places like 80 Barnes Park, Matheson Hammock. By high school, my parents were letting me go out with people who ended up being mentors or teachers to me. And we were doing day trips into the Everglades, going up to Central Florida to look for red cockaded woodpeckers and Bachman sparrows, brown-headed nuthatches, northern bobwhites. So we're going to uh, Kissimmee Prairie and the Orlando area even for a day trip from Miami. So all day, uh, long days out there. And, um, you know, I had, I had mentors like the late Paul Bithorn. Uh, we had Robin Diaz, Larry Manfredi, of course, Roberto Torres. We had Brian Raposa, John Boyd, Nancy Friedman, all these people that looking back now uh, were instrumental in my learning. Uh, they, they mentored me, they picked me up early in the morning, they dropped me off before I had a driver's license and really enabled me to get out there and, uh, and see some really awesome birds, start to understand migration, start to get a sense for where a lot of these birds spent their time in South Florida uh, as they passed through during migration or where the black whiskered vireos were breeding uh, close to my place. I mean, it was, it was a whole world unfolding before my very eyes uh, at a time where I uh, didn't have work obligations yet. I wasn't in college yet. Um, I had my school and as long as I did okay in school, which at sometimes I didn't. And I found that if I got better grades, my dad would allow me to go on bigger chases. So like if the loggerhead kingbird showed up, 
in Key West, uh, then I could go do that if I was doing well in school. I couldn't do that if I didn't. So this was like a, also a uh, better incentive for me to get out there. And, Motivation, uh, yes. Yeah, get my act together. Nice. Uh, so yeah, it goes on from there, but that's sort of the genesis of it when I was when I was a lot younger. Very cool. And then you said you did some field biology work. You probably uh, went to college, it sounds like then. Yeah. So after high school, um, I went off to the University of West Florida in Pensacola. So this is the Gulf Coast. And I studied mm -hmm. environmental science. I actually decided to do that uh, instead of biology because I was also, you know, interested in more than birds. I was also interested in geology um, hydrology, soils, botany. I wanted to, I wanted to learn more about the ecosystems and, and a little less about fixating on biology itself. And I chose University of West Florida, you know, admittedly, admittedly on, because ha just happened to be on the Gulf coast. Yeah. Because I wanted to be in Florida in state, but also in an area that was 10 hours away from Miami and be along the, uh, yeah, the, uh, the Gulf coast and, um, get to experience the, uh, the central flyway, the Mississippi flyway species that come through, you know, uh, hooded warblers and bay-breasted warblers. They're not very easy to come by in South Florida, but I knew that you could get them in Pensacola. So I ended up there and found that the birding culture there was a, a little bit more mellow. Um, unlike Miami, it had obviously far less people. You know, Pensacola now is experiencing a lot of growth, but at this point in their you know, mid 2000s, it was uh, still very sleepy and you had only a few birders there, but uh, two of them uh, ended up being sort of instrumental to my growth as well, especially in my appreciation of migration. And I consider them to be teachers until this very day to me, uh, Bob and Lucy Duncan. And they live very close to uh, the Gulf of Mexico on a point, uh, a peninsula on a barrier island that wow. some of the first birds that cross the Gulf of Mexico in the spring see as they're approaching North America. So I could go to their place and we could see scarlet tanagers and rose-breasted grosbeaks and even some unusual, at least for me at the time, Eastern warblers that we just didn't get along the Atlantic flyway coming out of the West Indies. So yeah, I, I went off to there and spent you know, my college years there. And very quickly after that, I ended up taking field gigs out West because of course I was... I wanted to see more than what was going on in Florida. And I started to take some field jobs uh, in, in Texas and New Mexico, eventually in Colorado and Wyoming. And I ended up in, in Nevada. Uh, so I was doing some uh, point counts with Bird Conservancy of the Rockies. They used to be Rocky Mountain Bird Observatory. Mm -hmm. And um, I would go back to Florida, of course, to see family, take some other field gigs and, uh, in Massachusetts that were more or less related to education and, and not uh, birds. So I, I bounced around a lot. Cool. Sounds like a, a pretty typical uh, post-undergraduate quest for a, for a birder. Uh, I've, I've heard 
similar stories from other young birders. So very cool. And you ended up in Las Vegas. Uh, I looked at your uh, eBird profile. You've gotten around the country pretty well. You've got a nice list and I have seen a lot of the country. Uh, what have been some of your favorite places to visit? Oof. Okay. So, you know, I, I started off uh, pretty fortunate to be in one of North America's premier birding locations, South Florida. Uh, that is always going to be home to me. I still have family there. A lot of my close friends are there. Um, there's nothing like birding some of the tropical hardwood hammocks that can produce things like Western Spindalis and Lasagas flycatchers, uh, Cuban peewee, you know, the uh, banana quits, of course. You know, so West Indian species down there, I have a, a special thing for them. And I've made a couple trips into the West Indies to see some of these birds where they breed. Nice. Uh, in North America, I really, I really enjoyed Baxter State Park in Maine. Really I'm a maniac. I, I'm a maniac. I grew up in Maine and I, I've, tomorrow at midnight, I fly back to see my family. So yeah, I, I love that boreal, boreal areas up there. Yeah. 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 What, which part of Maine will you be in? Uh, uh, Central Maine, near Waterville. Uh, I grew up in Oakland, Maine, which is a small town, Central Maine, Belgrade Lakes area. So it's only an hour from Rangeley, which is kind of a gateway to the to the mountain areas there. So it's nice. Uh, you're lucky. Lucky you. I wish I was in your, your shoes right now. Um, yeah, I love Maine. I can't wait to head back there. Uh, Lower Rio Grande Valley, of course, um, Southeast Arizona, Southern California um, is always a, a good time. Uh, for me personally, though, without a doubt, of all the places that I mentioned, you know, um, I, I would say that Alaska is the place that uh, I feel like I could bird. I could only bird Alaska for the rest of my life. And I think I would be pretty okay with that, actually. Um, I've been up there six different times now, but for work, actually. So I started in 2016 um, after a field season here in Las Vegas. I ended up there on the Kenai Peninsula to do a summer job uh, as a kayak guide and naturalist near Seward. Oh. And I thought this would be sort of like a one-off thing. Okay. I got to Alaska. Awesome. I don't know when I'll be back. I don't know how I'm going to get to places like Gamble or Nome or St. Paul. I just couldn't even imagine that at that point in time. Well, I ended up going back in 2017, 2018, and 2019 to work full summers. And at that point I had um, worked my way professionally or, or in terms of like the people I networked with uh, financially and also just felt like I could make this leap and spend some time on St. Paul Island uh, over in the Bering Sea. So I was able to spend two different falls there. That is truly an extraordinary place to spend any sort of amount of time in for a number of reasons. And uh, of course, after being there until October, well, now you got to go up to Utiavik, you know, the town where we notice Barrow to go and look for Ross's gulls. Sure. And yeah. Then I, I found myself hooked. So I was there earlier this summer in uh, Southeast Alaska, looking for temperate rainforest species like city grouse. And, you know, I, I find myself really focused on exploring more of Alaska. It's just 
it truly is uh, the last frontier, um, this expansive wilderness where you just feel like anything can happen and uh, anything can happen and you might not see another person uh, in the process of doing it. So Alaska Very cool. is that's my special place now. So it sounds like your company leads some tours to Alaska. We have in the past. Yeah. So uh, we did in 2019, uh, we had uh, Bird Las Vegas go up there with a group from Las Vegas and uh, checked out Nome and Seward. So went up there in June and of course uh, looked for things like blue throat, jeer falcon, Arctic warbler, Eastern yellow wagtail uh, before going down to Seward and doing uh, some, some trips out of there to look for some of the alcids that you can get in the Chiswell Islands. Mm -hmm. Very cool. I've only been to Alaska once. I'm dying to get back. It was might have been 93. It was a long, long time ago. Uh, but we did a 17-day trip in a van with, with seven people. It was fabulous. We went to started in Anchorage and went up to to uh, across the old Denali Highway to uh, to uh, Denali and. Uh, came back down and flew to Nome and spent a few days in Nome and then drove down to uh, to to uh, Seward on the Kenai Peninsula and took took just one little tiny boat ride out of out of uh, Seward but saw red faced cormorant and uh, it was just fabulous trip yeah can't wait to go back yeah you got to get back up there Ed uh, I'm surprised actually that you haven't been up there in in decades it sounds like but you you went to a lot of the the places because I hit the, hit the on land highlights and I need to get to an island or two now and yeah be good I'm excited you'll get there I will I hope so I hope so uh, what's coming up birding for you uh, other than uh, local birding do you have any trips planned or any uh you know things you're really looking forward to I have uh in December I'll be heading to uh Bosca del Apache for the festival of the cranes I'll be spending a couple mm -hmm. days there um, so I'll be leading a couple trips and workshops. So I'll be developing and designing those programs. Uh, some of them are fairly new for me, but I'm excited to create them and, uh, and teach and instruct there and, and make new friends, see some old ones and, uh, just hang around one of the, the best places to be birding, especially in the wintertime in Western North America. And in the wintertime, I'll also be heading off for a work assignment not related to bird las vegas in baja so uh the southern part of baja california uh sia cortez and some of the uh areas around uh, magdalena bay on the southwest side of of uh the baja peninsula nice do you have a day job outside your guiding business i do yes so what i tell people my nine to five is is uh, I am an educator, um, a contract educator, and I'm currently working almost exclusively for the local chapter of our Audubon Society here in Las Vegas. This is the Red Rock Audubon Society. And I came on board with them last winter and will be going for probably another year or so, um, at least, uh, maybe even more, who knows. And uh, basically what what I'm doing with them is working full time for big periods of time, except when I'm going off and doing a work assignment elsewhere or on vacation. And I'm helping them to 
create partnerships with other conservation-minded people and organizations in town. We're really thinking about water and uh, the water shortages, the mega drought that we're in and how that's affecting birds and other wildlife here and, and people. So we're, we're really looking as an organization to, uh, to be better about our messaging and making more of an impact. So uh, we're doing things with water, we're doing more leadership training. So uh, teaching people how to be interpretive naturalists in the Mojave Desert and uh, be more effective at energizing our members and people that join us on our uh, weekend bird walks to get them more involved in, in conservation in our area. So I'm doing things like that. I work with uh, interns that were brought on board earlier this year, and we're just always creating new projects. So it's kind of seeing where the email threads will take us. And um, it's been really exciting for me, actually, because a lot of what I've done in my birding career has been trying to get to the next place and see the next new bird. Uh, but actually, it's sort of like starting over in many ways, where now it's about adopting a beginner's mindset and spending time with people who are very new to birding and seeing what gets them excited about the burden or the great-tailed grackle, the house finch, even pigeons and Eurasian collar doves and sort of reassessing and reappraising my, uh, <laughs> my relationships to those birds. So uh, that's what I do and I love it. It's, it's a lot of fun. It, I travel less. Uh, Sounds like, uh, Larry Manfredi was, uh, you know, showed you, you can get a job doing what you love. Uh, I, I met Larry Manfredi when I, I took a, uh, a, a group from Washington. We got on his boat out to the dry Tortugas. He, uh -huh. you know, I, I don't know if it was his boat or a boat he hired anyway, but he was the tour guide and took a group of us out to the dry Tortugas. It was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful trip. And we uh, birded around there for a couple of days and it turned out after one of the last days on our whole South Florida trip, we came back from the Everglades late, and one of the uh, one of the uh, I think a couple of the women in our group wanted to go out to dinner. The rest of us just we're just getting a sandwich or something. They went out to dinner at a restaurant, and Larry Manfredi was at the restaurant. He comes up and taps Vera on the shoulder and said, uh, "What are you doing tomorrow?" And she said, and "He said, no, 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 that's not what you're doing tomorrow. You are going to I don't know what the, he said. There's a thick bill Vireo at such and such a park, and that's where you're going tomorrow." Vera okay. <laughs> came back and told us, "He's right. That's where we're going tomorrow." We went over and found a thick bill Vireo. So <laughs> that was oh, funny. Yeah. That sounds like a Larry Larry move. Yeah, I, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was. He's, he's a legend down there. Yeah, for very sure. cool. Well, Alex, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. If someone wants to reach out to you, what's the best way to get a hold of you? So if uh, you're interested in communicating with me, Alex Harper, directly and not Bird Las Vegas, uh, people can send me an email to alexkharper at gmail.com. So that's my first and last name with the letter K in between um, the first and last name there. So Alex K Harper at Gmail. And if somebody is interested in a bird tour, they can reach out to us at birdlasvegas at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. We also have a uh, website, birdlasvegas.com. Check us out. Uh, let us know if you're heading to Las Vegas and we'll try to set you up. Who doesn't go to Las Vegas sometime or other whether they want to or not? Uh, and if you don't want to and you're listening to this podcast, you've got a reason to go now. 
Bird Las Vegas can take you birding. Very cool. I'll make sure I put those uh, contact things in the podcast notes and on the blog post I, I write uh, with uh, sort of additional information about you in this episode. Uh, so, Alex, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Uh, you have a great rest of the fall. And uh, I will. Uh, maybe I'll drop an email, let you know what I see in Maine. Take care. Oh, yeah. Hey, safe travels. And I, I should ask you, where are you uh, tuning in from? Where do you live? I, I live in Puyallup. I used to. I live in Tacoma, Washington. I used to live okay. in Puyallup, Washington. I'm in Tacoma. You know, bird around here all, all the time. Chased a Tennessee warbler to a little hotspot here. Interesting. Uh-huh. A, a group from Philadelphia, I think. Some guy from Philadelphia leading a Northwest tour. Is, I don't know what they're doing at the GOG. It's a, like a little, it's the stinkiest hotspot in in, uh, in the Western Washington, I think. It's got a, a rendering plant right next door and it just smells to high heaven, but it can be a very good birding. Uh-huh. And they, they found a, a first year Tennessee warbler there that none of us relocated after they found it, but it was a little chase this morning. So yeah, uh-huh. get out of here all the time. Okay, cool. Uh, do you know Charlie Wright? Charlie I know Charlie. I know Charlie well. Uh, okay. Charlie was the... Uh, child phenom birder around here and is just one of the best birders I have ever met. He is and such an incredibly nice guy. And and actually I heard about this uh Tennessee Warbler because Charlie put out on a little uh we have a little text chain. We call ourselves the Pierce County Mafia a group of us. <laughs> uh, and Charlie's kind of instrumental in that. And he he let us know that he somehow heard about this bird. I don't know how he heard about it, but I think it's I don't know, it's a Facebook post or I don't know, something. And went down and we got there while the group was still there. We heard about it that quickly. But yeah, Charlie is super birder. Oh my goodness. Yeah. 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 How do you how do you know Charlie? From Alaska? Uh before that, actually. Um, I, I have met up with him for Hawaiian uh in Anchorage before. I met his uh his wife. Mm-hmm. And uh that was the last time I saw him, but my first trip to the West Coast, I actually flew to Seattle and spent some time with some family friends in Seattle and uh, also met Charlie. Uh, we were in communication probably through Facebook or there used to be a uh, Yahoo Birders Young a young Birder Club mm-hmm. on the internet. This is before MySpace, before, uh, right. before Facebook. And there are about 10 or 15 of us. Charlie was on there. Myself was on there. So I had been in touch with him and he took me all around Washington state. He showed me my first, you know, common muir and rednecked grebe, Stellar's Jay, you know, American Dipper, all that fun stuff. Yeah. Uh, and we went to Mexico together in 2010. We went to the Yucatan. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. 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 Well, you're, you're in good company with Charlie anytime. He is such a, a fine person and, just crazy good birder so good for you guys good for you guys good thanks again alex you take care and thanks for being on the podcast i appreciate it take care i appreciate you and safe travels to maine have fun over there i will bye-bye we'll see you well thanks for listening it's fun to hear from birders who grew up during the times when the internet was revolutionizing birding communication and relationships. I had no idea that Alex was friends with Charlie, uh, and it was cool to hear how they found each other online in their early days as a birding group and have remained friends for years. On the episode, I briefly mentioned about a planned family trip to Maine. I'm home now, and it was a nice visit, but involved really very little birding. Uh, the weather wasn't great, and uh, it was really a family trip. But I did enjoy the common loons continuing to call from across McGraw Pond, where my bro- 
Brother Bill's camp is, and seeing a few specialties there on a nearby some nearby walks. The weather was cool, and maybe next time it'll be uh, better weather. Anyway, thanks for listening, and as always, check out the blog post on this episode of birdbanner.com for more links and related information. Until next time, thanks for listening, good birding, and good day.